Welcome to Films in the Wilderness, a four-week limited podcast series during Advent 2021, brought to you by the Diocese of Southern Ohio. I'm Carl Stevens. I'm Jed Deering. And with us today is my friend and sometimes my mentor and a great and wonderful mind, uh, Marsha Dutton, Professor Emerita at Ohio University, um, specializing in medieval literature and executive editor of Cistercian Publications. Marsha, is there anything you want to add to your introduction? No, that sounds good. Thank you. Sure. Uh, so, Jed, will you offer us today? We are—I should say—today we are uh, discussing *The Green Knight*, um, which is a uh, 2021 film by David Lowry. And Jed, you want to give us a synopsis of the film? Absolutely. Uh, *The Green Knight* uh, is uh, quite an epic fantasy adventure. It's based on the timeless Arthurian legend. Uh, *The Green Knight* tells the so- story of Sir Gawain. Uh, King Arthur's uh, young, reckless, untested, headstrong, many things, nephew, (laughs) who uh, embarks uh, on a daring quest to confront the eponymous Green Knight, a gigantic emerald skinned stranger and tester of men who comes on Christmas Day offering a game. Uh, King Arthur uh, not being able to wield Excalibur anymore and meet uh, the Green Knight uh, in this game offers up to the room of legends who surround him in what is a fading Camelot and Gawain accepts the match um, lopping off the head of the green knight uh, but part of the contract as it were in this game is that in a year hence uh, on Christmas day he will need to head to find the green knight six nights north in the green chapel where the knight has an opportunity to return the same blow that was given to him. And so on this story, we set off with Gawain as he travels from Camelot to the chapel and has many adventures along the way, uh, laden um, with, with many symbols and many possibilities for interpretation that I'm sure we will get into today. Great. And I will now offer the scripture reading that uh, you, Jed, have paired with this movie. It's Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 10. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, See, God, I have come to do your will. O God, in the scroll of the book it is written of me. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, see, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And it's by God's will that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So, as we, as we hear those words and we consider this movie, I think we have to acknowledge the fact that we will really be talking about two things. We'll be talking about the movie, but then, Marsha, you are uh, well-versed in the poem, and you will be able to bring a kind of contrast or comparison between the film itself and the poem that it is based on, uh, which will be invaluable to us. So let's, let's start there. What, wh- when you were watching the movie, were there moments where you were shaking your head and saying, this 
is this is leaving the poem behind or this interpretation seems wrong or uh what was your what was your take on it marcia well i i learned a long time ago that you don't expect a film to be identical to its source understanding that i tried actually to treat it on its own terms but but i should just say um Gawain and the green knight is i think one of the truly greatest uh, medieval english poems and it's about Gawain, who is the greatest of the knights as we know because we see him at the beginning sitting beside the queen he's already a knight he's not an untried youth he's the greatest of the knights and he is a profoundly Christian knight. And throughout this poem, he more often goes to mass and confesses and calls on Christ and wears um, signs of Christ on his shield and Mary. And I was really, well, not surprised, I suppose, but irritated at the idea that what the filmmaker did was to substitute magic for, for Christianity. Hmm. So we have the first words in the film are something like Jesus is risen. And having gotten that out of the way, we then move on to magic. Um, and so the fact that it's set at Christmas time becomes, you know, unimportant. Um, there seemed to be a whole lot of padding in the film. I found it very slow. I would not have watched it all the way through had I not been supposed to talk to you about it. Um, and it means that, and here's my sort of overall take, it means that the poem sets up the greatest of knights who, who learns humility in front of forgiveness, whereas the movie takes someone who is humble and turns him into being someone who is um, learning how to be proud. Now, the end of it, where all of a sudden he becomes humble, that doesn't quite work, except I think we're supposed to see that that's a knight's pride. So the movie actually reverses the direction of the, of the poem huh. and turns it into, you know, fake medievalism, you know, medieval language, medieval music, giant, naked giantesses, um, lots of stuff that has nothing to do whatsoever with the original poem. And it seems to me like padding. Oh. So having said that, I will now plan to discuss the film as such. But, but my take on it is that once again, they took a really stunning medieval poem and stripped it of the parts that the filmmaker didn't really understand, oh. which is to say Christianity. Huh. Well, that uh, that's I mean, I appreciate that take a lot. To me, what's interesting about it as a film is that it is doing something I'm seeing a lot in media lately from um, the Hulu show, The Great, um, obviously to to this, to The Green Knight. And there, there was one other example that came to mind recently, but it, it doesn't really matter that much. But um, religiosity seems to be appearing in the media in a very different way outside of of the christian context and often when it appears 
I feel myself just glad that it's there at all because it's like a, 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 a media that for a long time has really kind of ignored religion <laughs> seems now to be asking religious questions, but they are kind of a, a, maybe a universalist type of religion. They're not they're not rooted in Christianity. They're rooted in uh, profound questions of what happens after death and you know what is what is the role of humanity on earth there's a kind of ontological question that's being asked um, or you know what do we make of the divine um, but maybe maybe it's just because for so long those questions weren't being asked uh, or if they were being asked they were being asked in a very um, pietistic you know way that didn't really engage with the questions that much either. Uh, I feel gratitude that they are being asked now. But to replace them with magic, which is what I think this film does. So we have the mother casting the spell and we have these giantesses and um, it, it, it's, I, I really felt as though the filmmaker simply, well, either hadn't read the poem, which actually seemed to me in the first place, true, um, but wanted to make it what he thought magic or what he thought medievalism was, hmm. which is to say magic and moody music. I discovered that there's on um, Sirius XM, there's something called the Spa Channel, yeah. which is where you get lots of meditative, I mean, it's, you know, gongs and so on to help you yeah. relax while you're getting a massage. Well, that seems to be what they think medieval music was all about, was gongs to help you enter the mood. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, the, 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 the replacement of Christianity with magic, which would have shocked medieval Christians, may I say. Yeah. Um, and, and as I say in the poem, he wears a shield with Christ represented both front and back. Notice that we lose that shield very early. And it's stomped, you know, it's stomped and cracked in two. Exactly. Yeah. And then he doesn't have it anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is a garter part of the poem? Does he have a green garter which should protect him? It does. Excuse me. I'm sorry. Yeah, except, I mean, I don't know. That's a funny, a funny thing in the poem, in the in the movie. <coughs> His mother gives it to him and says, don't lose this. But then we don't see anything about it. And then all of a sudden, the lady, who may I say, is dressed in a way no medieval woman ever was. Yes, and the first was way too cold in the castles. Uh -huh. There's way too much violence and, and, and uh, sex, unpleasant sex, inserted into this movie. Hmm. As though we simply couldn't do without it. Um, but um, then she gives it to him and tells him, and I would have to watch the movie again, which I'm not going to do, but she tells him it'll protect him. And then at the very end, when he pulls it off, as though, you know, it really would protect him, but he being a, now a brave knight is willing to do without the protection. Well, in the movie... He does take it and he confesses his encounters with the with the lady. And there's that's quite a, a very lengthy, a three-day-long event in the in the poem. He does take it, and when he confesses, we have the sense that he has not confessed taking this piece of magic. Hmm. 
at the end, and I'm sorry, I said I wouldn't do this, but at the end of, of the poem, um, the knight nicks him and then doesn't cut off his head. And then he says, but you are the best. You are the pearl among peas. You are the best of the knights. You just wanted to protect your life. That's all right. That's what humans do. And he says, but take this, take this girdle with you. Now, my students always thought the girdle had protected him, but it didn't. It was the generosity of the night. And he says, take this with you as a sign of your greatness. And Gawain says, and I just, I just reread the poem this morning. He says, I will take this as a blazon of my cowardice. Huh. I will wear this to show that uh, my shame. And then he goes back to court and he is wearing it and he confesses his shame to the knights. And they all kind of breeze right past that and they say, oh, no, you're going the greatest of the night. And he wears it. So it's got a double meaning at the end where where Gawain wears it, understanding now that he might be the greatest knight, but he wasn't able to trust in Christ or in his own courage, but thought he could depend on a piece of green cloth. Mm. Well, we all know that green cloth does not save your life. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and even a Christian poem, this is perfectly clear. My students don't understand that. But, but he knows that he simply failed. Mm -hmm. In the movie, the green cloth becomes sort of incidental, right? So uh, I, would, I would counter that a little bit in that I think for me, the, the, I will say the meaning that I took when he removes the green cloth at the end, um, when he's facing down the green, uh, the green knight in the chapel, was a willingness to a willingness to let go of uh, magic, of privilege, of the things that would protect him, that he would rely on, mm -hmm. and instead to um, instead to encounter the green knight himself. I felt like there was a sense of like I'm, I'm, I'm not relying on this. I don't need this. I I need to come and I need to face you as I am as a man in front of you. And, oh, I, I uh, absolutely agree with you on that. When I say it's yeah. irrelevant, I mean it's relevant as a symbol to us there at the end yeah. of his doing that. No, I think that's absolutely true. Yeah, it's. Just that in, in the poem, it really is a sign of his failure. Hmm. And in the movie, it is used as a sign of his of his development of, of bravery, of independent bravery, of, of courage, of willing to present himself. And that, then he says, okay, now I'm ready. And so so he has become he's become an adult now. And the casting way of that, but that still suggests that. He still thought it would protect him, right? I think so. So I so let's let's say that this is now still a, a spiritual text. The movie is a spiritual text. Mm -hmm. I think you're right that it's not a Christian text, but I, I wonder if we could spend a few minutes delving into kind of the spiritual meaning that David Lowry is trying to get at. And for me, um, there's a very interesting thing between red and green going on here. Um, so at, at the very beginning, Arthur talks about how he and his 
Roundtable have uh, spread civilization and and held off the Saxons, and so we're introduced to this idea that that the work of Arthur and his court is to civilize. Um, and then there's that conversation. He asks he asks Gawain to tell him a story of himself. Arthur says so that I I may know you better, and Gawain in the movie has no story to tell because as as you said, Marcia, he's not actually at this point right. uh, a, a knight even. He's just a kind of callow youth. Um, I'm straight from the brothel to dinner. Exactly right, and his mother comments on it. She's like, you know, you yeah. don't smell like you've been at mass. You know, like you you smell like you've been doing something else. Um, so. So the 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 like Gawain's journey is towards a kind of maturity and adulthood, but the film also sets up this question of facing your death because Arthur says to him, you know, every knight here has gone towards death, has has sought out an encounter with death, and then the movie proceeds to ask the question, well, what kind of encounter with death is actually worthwhile, and it does that I think through the use of red and green. So there's the red death, which is um, the this quote-unquote civilizing death, the violent death, right? Um, and so, for instance, when he comes to that that cottage with the, the ghost who wants him to retrieve her head, when he dives yeah. down into the lagoon to get her head, it's all red, right? So this is an encounter with kind of violent civilizing death, so to speak. Whereas, like, green deaths, there are two of them. When he's taken by the bandits in the forest and tied up, and then the the camera pans around and we see his skeleton, and then it pans back around to his live self, um, that is an encounter with the green death, but not one that he himself has chosen. Like, his agency is not part of that. Um, and then when when he comes to the castle of... of who, the person who we know to be the Green Knight, but who is in a, in a human form, not a green form, and whose wife um, is played by uh, Alicia Vikander, who also plays Gawain's kind of prostitute girlfriend at the, at the beginning. Um, she gives this long speech about green and red, right? And about how we do all the things to try and impose order and create civilization in our bodies and the world around us and yet the green the verdigris is always going to come in like we will not be able to keep it at bay and so for me when when he chooses um to take off that that girdle at the end it, it be, well i don't i don't quite know what to think of it because that girdle is supposed to keep death at bay he invites death from the hand of the green knight. So in in a way, I want to say that he's choosing the green death, right? Like if to become a, a full human being, he has to encounter death and accept its reality. Um, he's choosing the kind of death which we have less control over, which we cannot, you know, choose, which we cannot time by our civiliz- civilizing instincts or our violence. So I don't know. That's my that's my theory and disquisition of the movie. But John, you haven't said much. Like, what what are your thoughts before we kind of have generalized conversation? I mean, you know, I think when we, I, th- I think the framing of it, you know, be start the story starting there at the round table, really, and with King Arthur and what it means that, um, what it means that 
Arthur is at a point where he is playing games. <laughs> you know, his enemies, his enemies have all knelt, as he says, you know, has led the legends around him have done the work for him. He's fading. The house is fading in some ways. Uh, and and he's called in these games and he invites uh, Gowan into this game. And so does his mother as well. You know, and I I think I that's where I'm interested in some conversation because, you know, we see. I feel like two reads with the mother, you you have the read of, okay, she uh, has this incantation, uh, Morgan Le Fay has this incantation, you know, they bring the green knight into being, as it were, or into encounter, and he has a choice of whether or not to lop off the knight's head, and he could have chosen another way, and was she trying to present him with an opportunity to, to see that there is another way forward? <laughs> Or did she know that he, in fact, would respond because of uh, being in front of these other legends by lopping off this head and having to go, <laughs> go into this chapel and face, you know, face death and that he needed to see and to face that. And she wanted to drive him towards it. Um, and, you know, what, it, what does it mean that in a sense, it feels like Arthur and then by extension Gawain play what is a dishonorable game um and but is that dishonorable game what's necessary for growth what's necessary for transformation um you know so I I, I think from the outset from the outset for me there is so much that is troubled yeah, explain. Could you say something about the dishonorable game? Yes, just I think that um, it's a world in which uh, it's a world in which wielding the sword is certainly a thing of honor, right? In that world, and yet, um, and yet, if this were a Christian world. <laughs> <laughs> that we're following Christ, right? That we're, um, one, you know, one would not wield the sword to behead when someone presents themselves before you. And he had a choice where he could have even nicked the cheek there. You know, he could have made, uh, Gawain could have made the graceful move. Um, and Gawain was seeking glory, honor to become a legend um, and, and chose to lop off the head. <laughs> and he and went and went that route and you know it feels like they were all caught up together in in what felt like a dishonorable game for honorable intentions i <laughs> mm -hmm. um and i don't know if that's too much of me reading a modern view back into it too much of me reading my faith and what it means what what violence means what turning the other cheek means um, these things, but for, uh, you know, for a beheading on Christmas day, uh, <laughs> you know, it feels to me like we're starting from a place of dishonor and, um, sanctioned dishonor. And certainly, you know, as we wake up with Gawain on Christmas day, essentially, you know, in, in the brothel, just outside of the stables, while, you know, a house is fire was on fire and, someone is wielding a sword and putting a woman on a horse and off on the run, you know, there's, there's much happening <laughs> out in the world. And he's waking up in this brothel in, in a sense, you know, in a dishonorable way as well. Um, 
you know, it seems fitting for him, but I, I struggle with that as the catalyst for our story, the encounter with the Green Knight. and wonder, wonder how to think about reading it differently or encountering it differently. Well, I, let me add one other scene to the thesis, and then, Marsha, I want to know, like, what, how people thought about honor in the medieval period. But um, when when he's at the castle of the Green Knight and his mysterious wife, there is a rather scatological scene uh, where she is returning the, the girdle to him, but through really a masturbatory process which he gives into and her you know her response afterwards is contempt you know she says you are no knight so again i think there's there is that piece of dishonor but but marcia what how did how did medieval people think of honor well it's very interesting <laughs> there are two aspects of that that um of that question first of all and i was thinking jed i think you're absolutely right about what you say at the beginning i That he could have taken a different route. In the poem, the Green Knight comes and challenges the honor of the court and says, I have heard so much about the court of King Arthur. I've heard of of the greatness of of the king and of all the knights. And um, so I'm giving you an opportunity to show it. And they are all, they all avert their eyes. They all, and the poem, the poet says, not all of them for fear, I think. Um, but most of them, and including Arthur, um, my husband talking about this poem to his class once said that Arthur in the poem, uh, who just kind of shakes the axe around, that he's busy tying his shoes, which the students thought was the truth, and they put it in their test exams. Um, <laughs> but uh, And Gawain is the only one who will step up. So at that point in the poem, it's explicitly a challenge to the court's honor. Okay. Are you as great as you're said to be? Okay. So I think that at least in the poem, we start out okay. assuming that that is honor. But now, more importantly, I think, throughout the poem is that Gawain keeps his word. And that is insisted right up to the end. And in fact, in the scene where the the Greek, where the host and Gawain agree to exchange gifts, which goes on for three days. I just counted this morning in the poem four times Gawain agrees to this. Four mm-hmm. times he agrees. Um, and so, and he keeps his word. Everything about the poem is about him keeping his word, mm-hmm. which is why the green girdle is kind of. Uh, there we have real dishonor that he is descend having agreed to one kind of thing he thinks that he can take his way out by by magic um so there are two kinds of honor here one is to you know be brave so that so in fact um the what is that the red death or the green death um, but most of the poem is about Gawain keeping his word right up to the end. And at the end, he has learned, he's learned to be humble. He says, this is, this is the way it is with humans. Um, so I really like the idea of thinking, I mean, I think that whole, I actually turned it off just before the talking fox not knowing that the fox was going to talk. There's another weird thing. Um, Unless we think of it as being like 
Peter saying, no, no, don't do this, which is one possibility. Although it's odd to put Peter into the voice of a fox, but still. Um, but I had turned it off and so came back to it and watched the whole last episode, which actually gave me, uh, helped me see the film as its own thing. Mm -hmm. So that as I understand that whole final half hour, Gawain, who has fled from the axe the first time, thereby in fact betraying uh, knightly honor and his word. After he sees what it would be like if he just goes back to court, having denied all that, and sees that it's just going to be a long, dragged out process of further loss, further betrayal, further abandonment of his principles. And so when we come back to the end then, he does at last keep his word. And in that, throwing the girdle away at that point, he does say, okay, here I am. I'm ready. Yeah. Uh, and so there we get the kind of honor that I think the poem is trying to get at, actually, mm -hmm. to keep your word, to do what you're supposed to do. I, I don't think, the, well, maybe the film at the end considers it in terms of humility. Um, to keep your word, to do what you've said you will do, even if it leads to death, knowing that the other way is going to lead to death anyway. Right. That you don't really have a choice. I mean, death, death is there. You can do it fast, you can do it slow, you can do it honorably, you can do it dishonorably. Doesn't make any difference in terms of the outcome. Now, I'm sorry, I've wandered from the question of honor, except... Oh. No, that's helpful. You know, I think um, for me, uh, what's interesting is it feels like the movie is setting up the idea that, um, you know, we've got it. We've got an untested hero driven by the wrong impulse, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which is different than the poem. And ultimately, the journey that he's going on is a, a journey to a journey in which I think our hero in this case realizes that he was driven by the wrong impulses. You know, he, in a lot of ways, he was rejecting what was real and right in front of him, especially mm -hmm. when we think about, um, is it Ellie, Ellie, I believe, uh, his girlfriend. Essel. Essel. Okay. Essel. And um, you know, he has, you know, what does she she say? She wishes that she could sit by his side, take his hand and have his ear. <laughs> and and instead, like he's willing to reject that and her to lose everything. That's right. Important in pursuit of at that point, I think something that is not. Um, and it feels like in this movie, um, the catalyst is what needs to end up being rejected. The impulse is what needs to end up being rejected. And he, Gawain needs to find and discover a different way forward that's not about myth-making or becoming a legend <laughs> um, to uphold this crumbling uh, kingdom of King Arthur's. Uh, and that, that if he's gonna be invited into those games, uh, it, they are games that just lead to an endless cycle of violence. Um, it's kind of a way that a way for me that I I read. And so his, you know, um, 
I can, Carl, I don't know, where, what, what do you think? Other places well, no, you would I, go? I want to add to that and also expand my Red Death and Green Death thesis. Yeah. Um, because, so when, when Gawain, like the first encounter after he leaves Camelot is with, on this battlefield where corpses are all around and um, the, the boy he meets there tells him that the king killed all these people. Right. Now, obviously, we've just seen King Arthur. We know that he's too decrepit to actually probably go out and kill all these people. But I think the king here means an extension of the king's will in the armies that fight for him. Right. So there is there there is this kind of sense that that civilizing power um, is destructive in many ways. It's not to be envied or looked for, really. And then uh, the fox itself is red. Right. So he's being kind of led by this by the Red Death in a way like that is his guide or his companion. So that that thought of that destructive, violent, civilizing power goes with him the entire way and tries to talk him out of seeking the Green Death towards the end. Um, so I I mean, I, I, I just think we can't get away from from that central image, like what death you choose is really important. Uh, in the film. Now, I, th- I think, Marsha, you're raising this completely other question, which I find really fascinating. You know, we can we can accept that Christianity is something that has changed with the centuries. You know, you go and read, like, Yaroslav Pelican's Jesus Through the Centuries or Mary Through the Centuries, and you understand that a 2,000-year religion is always in some way going to reflect its time, and the thoughts of its time um, and try to incorporate it or at least be in conversation with whatever is going on in the world and the cultures it inhabits. Um, So a a film that takes a medieval legend and contemporizes it uh, in many ways, some of which are objectionable, you know, like sexy castle dress might not really be all that necessary for the actual point of view. And large naked giantesses. I don't understand anything about that. Right. Yeah, right. So that that kind of magical part, um, I don't know if that, maybe it has something to do with the theme, but I'm not entirely sure with you. Um, But in other ways, what it's trying to do is is have, if if not a directly Christian method, at least a, a, a message, at least a spiritual message that is in keeping with our time, but I will say, I think that Christianity can be found in that question of uh, encounter with death. You know, that, that again and again, in our, in our contemporary media and the stories we tell, we have characters who are so terrified of death that they end up doing great evil. Um, Voldemort, for instance, in the Harry Potter books, you know, might be a really good example. Um, and that seems to be a kind of contemporary spiritual reading that... The more you try to preserve, particularly if you try to preserve it through violence and oppression, the more you lose. And um, that the way to liberation of character, or maybe um, the way to find honor, is to accept the kind of the naturalness of death. So that that's my thought. I mean, what... What I guess a question I have for you, Marcia, is when you look back, have you ever seen a movie that has portrayed the medieval world in a way that is uh, at all true to what it was? <laughs> I um, I can't I can't think. I mean, what I can think of is the the recent Beowulf 
which is absolutely not. Once again, I feel that modern filmmakers have so little understanding that they think they think that it's sexy in the larger sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and so they try to do it with, you know, as in this one with the subtitles and the medieval language, which is a really weird thing. And but I and I just I don't see so many movies. And so I would have to I would have to reconstruct I just I I I I can't I can't come up with it uh at the moment. I do think that I mean I I would like to be pleased by the idea of remaking medieval texts. Mm. Um and it's not as though I think they have to be identical in theme or in plot. Um I'd like for them to be a little less confused. Huh. Guess that's and so I but I, I shouldn't say that generally because I haven't I can't think right now. I'm thinking of some Robin Hood films some time ago, mm-hmm. um, which I think tried to be close to the original rather than um rather than to remake the world. Uh, but it's a long time ago, so I just can't, I can't remember. Um, I do think that, that the difficulty is a real one um, to figure out what the values are and the needs, um, you know, what production, what production values we value. Um, and so um, if we have to have unpleasant sex and frightening violence in a modern movie then that then that changes that inevitably changes how we evaluate it it's interesting jed i think what you say about gawain could have refused the opportunity to cut off the green knight's head i think that's a really interesting question one that would never have occurred to 14th century Christians as a sign of Christianity, or at least not to knights. So I think, yeah, and I think that's something that gives me a clue into what I think, some of what I think the director, David Lowry, is doing with this story and the distinct differences and angle that he's taken, which is, I do think that it is a real critique of the moral and religious order of the day of Arthurian exceptionalism, of this idea of, you know, you have, of course, uh, we have Arthur and Guinevere in haloed crowns, right? And and this, a nice symbolic way of showing us how they thought of themselves as an extension of the kingdom of heaven, right? <laughs> and its agents and the way that religion was working in that time. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think they're, uh, the movie, I think it's a very intentional, it's doing really intentional work to kind of deconstruct mm-hmm. and uh, critique the way that the way that legend, these legends are formed, these myths that are formed that call us to certain ways of being in the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. that maybe, maybe they aren't as glorious as they seemed. Um, again, yeah, and I think I think we have the the freedom to do that. 
when we look back on these old texts and and to play with them. Um, but it is intentional and it is a break. Actually, I, you, you've just made me think of something else. As I say, the poem begins with a challenge to Arthur's court. So there, it's already deconstructed because the whole court looks away. I mean, they, mm-hmm. they deny yeah. even the honor in their own terms. Can't yeah. do it. Hmm. The end of the the end of the poem, and I, I I don't think I said this before. At the end of the poem, I've always understood at the end the Green Knight acts as though he's going to give the third chop and doesn't, and Gawain says, "Okay, enough. You said, you know, I agreed to this, and you haven't done it." And I've always understood what happens there as the Green Knight really being exercising divine forgiveness, Hmm. that Gawain has broken his word, that he even, he takes up the task of honor that the rest of the court couldn't do, and even so, he can't follow through. And the divine forgiveness is to say, yeah, you're as good as it gets. It's just that you're human and you want to save your life. Mm-hmm. And so that deconstruction is actually part of the poem. But we get, I mean, notice that the movie doesn't tell us what happens there. Mm-hmm. But that's where we stop. So what we don't get is that demonstration of what I have always thought was the point of the poem. That even the best of us trying to live out the honor as of, life, of our life as we understand it can't. I mean, this is this is the act of mercy. But it's interesting, we don't know what happens in the movie. So the movie, the movie doesn't give us that understanding. For all we know, he now experiences the green death or the red death. I mean, for all we know, the the green knight is now gonna do what he said he would. Mm-hmm. The poem actually gives us mercy at the end. And so anyway, I, I, I think I've gotten lost again a little bit, but um, but attempting to solve that question of what is honor in that world as and how we understand honor in our world and how we bring those together to see how it works is a really complex one, I think. In fact, one of the things I struggled with is the whole question. If you have a 14th century poem portraying what is maybe a fifth century world, you've already got a conflict, right? right? Then we have a 21st century film representing a 14th century poem representing a a fifth century world. Well, how do you bring those cultures together to make sense? And it means, no wonder it's complicated because it's necessarily complicated by those conflicts. So the sex and the, the so the, the sex stuff in the film is absolutely, I think, characteristic of a modern necessity. There's a lot of sex in the, there's a lot of sexual possibility in the, in the 14th century poem that presumably was not true in the fifth century. But so that complexity makes it hard for us to think about meaning and honor. Well, it 
all this is raising a question in me, which is, um, and I, I mean, I like the film a, a lot, um, but I do wonder what what we've lost as we've kind of turned away from Christian understandings of sacrifice and grace and forgiveness and sanctification, and when our spiritual conversation now as a culture is really kind of individualistic, right? It's a personal quest to find uh, authenticity within ourselves, which is a, a good and worthwhile thing. Um, but as long as it's purely self-motivated, it it cannot incorporate grace, really. As long as we think that we can find that authenticity on our own, we have shut off the possibility of grace. Um, and if this film is a reflection of our current spirituality, which I think it is, I think our conversation today is is exposing a lack in that spirituality. The indeterminate ending turns us back to that individualism, doesn't it? In that we don't know what happens there, so we don't know how to evaluate. But in terms of the, the Hebrews reading, what is clear, and maybe you chose it for this reason, is that Gawain puts his body on the line mm-hmm. in every way, in fact, as he as he sets out on the journey, as he goes through the field of corpses, as he goes into the pool for Winifred's head. He, he does keep his word. He does put his body on the line the whole time. And at the end, when he says, okay, now I'm ready, what we are left with is, in fact, the fulfillment of that idea that that we present ourselves to God as a body, in the body, mm-hmm. that we don't, it's like James. I always think that passage from James is so incredible, you know, it works, faith without works is like looking into a mirror and forgetting what you look like when you turn away. Um, and that that is another way of saying you've got to put your body on the line you've got to remember what you look like and you've got to use what you look like to carry through and that's and that's why i say i think the last half hour of the movie stops being fake in some ways, mm-hmm. it still is, but, but it, it, it means that at that point, it's really talking about what is the life you choose, not just what is the death you choose, what is the life you choose? Mm-hmm. And it may be faster, it may be slow, but here we get to questions of, of martyrdom, mm-hmm. of a willingness to, to, to use one's body not just one's mind, but to use one's body to 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 serve God. Uh, that what it means, in fact, to be Christian is to be embodied and to use that body in yeah. whatever one does. And so, well, I think, I, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, you know, I think that. One of the reasons for choosing that Hebrews passage was in a similar way that the law casts a shadow over, uh, you know, casts a shadow uh, over the Hebrew people that could be, um, uh, in which it could become, it could become lived out in a perfunctory way. And it held the possibility to 
um, to be, you know, a series of actions that were duty, that were seen for honor. You know, it feels like uh, one of the projects that Jesus is up to <laughs> is a con- is a trying to call back to matters of the heart of what it means to actually bring your body to bear in this work of caring for others, of seeing and valuing others' bodies, of of seeing how the law uh, can actually be fulfilled and enacted, um, and uh, and that it's, it means a breaking out in some ways from underneath the shadow of the law that is there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think you know we have we have in this story certainly like a breaking out from under the shadow of that Gawain seems to have to do of right. of the myth, the legend that he's supposed to live into and become. One of the tricky parts that I hear you both naming now is that as when we right now are in a time currently in modern day where we are so critical of institution uh, and rightly so, and for many reasons, um, it can be harder to go then, I think, well, who then is this for? <laughs> and who then do we live for? Who do we fight for? Who, and, you know, we, we, we tended to just turn it in on ourselves um so it's either it's either well the institution is broken you don't you don't sacrifice and give and fight for that you can turn it into yourself but we know the limits of that and this is where i think the church is positioned and christ is positioned to call us into another way of living and acting and being that in which those values of sacrifice of keeping the word of you know, those the chivalrous ways of being. <laughs> um, where we're called into living that, not not simply for ourselves and not behalf of an institution or some tradition that casts a shadow over us, but out of a deep love for God and for others in this earth and um that has been given to us as a gift. And so to continue to figure out what does it mean to be called back into that and that those our actions still do matter our actions for others and we don't have to lay them aside just because we're no longer doing them on behalf of these institutions in the same way mm-hmm. well i think we're coming to our end this has been a really fruitful and and uh, powerful discussion i thank you marcia so much in some ways uh, sometimes our discussions are just love fasts about the movies that we've seen, and um, you bringing a critical eye, I think, really opened things up in, in ways that were incredibly helpful to me. Uh, it, not only in my thinking about this movie, but my thinking about my faith. Um, so we usually Carl, may I ask you one question? Yeah. Whether or not you edit this out, it's fine, but I'd like to ask you one question. Sure. And maybe, maybe you mentioned this earlier and I missed it, but you were mentioning your thesis about the red death and the green death. Right. And what's interesting, of course, is that green chapel uh, that Gawain comes to at the end is a chapel much like uh, when the lady mentions all of his footsteps will be overgrown with grass. Mm-hmm. That this chapel is one that has now been overgrown. You could argue perhaps overtaken by a green death. Yep. Uh, I wonder how you read the idea of the green chapel in light of uh, your thesis. Uh, well, I think it's a green death that he's been meant to go to. 
and and the temptation if we're to think of this as a kind of morality play where he confronts temptations along the way uh one it's a weird morality play because he fails well yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah um uh but but a lot of the temptations are um to embrace the red death instead which i i think he does at the beginning when he cuts off the green knight's head right it's like of course my path must be violence and um so he ends in this chapel where what's so nice well powerful about it is he comes into the presence of the green knight and the green knight is not awake is just sitting there and so what happens then is is really the first form of maybe prayer or meditation that we see Gawain really undertake you know like he is uh, he has a moment of spirit well not a moment a whole night of spiritual preparation for what's come next and then he still almost fails right like all that all that spiritual preparation doesn't actually prepare him for the moment um but maybe it prepares him for the vision of what his failure would bring him to. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that really answers your question, Jed, but I, I, I think I think the film is positing that um, if we want to look for God, um, we can look for it through civilization, but there is a pretty high cost in, in looking for God there. Looking for God instead in this place of, of great greenness um in the film's language i think is is seen as preferable um but it's also a chapel too and and that i think that's where like i keep coming to this question of what is christianity becoming now you know because we have a big creation care effort at this church many people talk about how they find god more in nature frankly than they do within a sanctuary um and i've certainly experienced god most profoundly in nature and and know that when i'm worshiping and leading worship on a sunday what i am doing is i'm pointing to those experiences and sometimes they come in particularly when the music is good you know that i feel that i have that same that same experience um but the places in my life where i've experienced grace most surprisingly have been in natural settings so i'm saying too much because i'm raising well you know i think that's interesting because when as you say the word grace it reminds me of the fact that many people touch uh gawain's face throughout this movie Mm -hmm. many times arthur rubs the blood off from his bar fight his drunken bar fight yeah. Um, but in the end, we have the Green Knight almost replacing Arthur in this chapel and actually wiping, you know, putting his hand on his face. And then Gawain, who in this telling has never and not been a knight, is essentially knighted um, by the Green Knight in this chapel, in this green space. <laughs> and it is like he is um, he is coming into his own as a knight in a world that he is accept- he's accepting the inevitable green death. <laughs> <laughs> and and a world that's different and other than Camelot. Um, and I'm I'm excited to spend more time with this movie. I think wrestling wrestling that out. But 
It's a it's a really complex film. So we have an ending question, um, which is if you know if you were going in the wilderness, if you were red, led by a red fox, uh, you know, out into the wilderness in pursuit of a quest, would you take this movie with you? Um, I don't know, Marsha. Would you? Or it sounds like you oh, might no. take it home. I, the poem. I was. I mean, really, I haven't reread the poem since I stopped teaching. Mm-hmm. And I last night I thought, where where what book was I reading it in? And then I remembered and happened to have seen it recently. So I got it out this morning and read it. And it's and actually one of the interesting things is that in the poem, the green knight, he's all green, but he also were repeatedly told he has birds and butterflies on his armor. I mean, he is very much full of nature, not just in greenness, but in in all, all the goodness of nature, the beauty of nature. Mm-hmm. And so that that line carries through. Um, but I, I was, I'm not, I am answering your question in a way. It, I think it seems to me that um, it seems to me that the difference between the spiritual feelings, if I can say that, in nature and what happens in church is that I once had a a priest talk about being with his family on Christmas Day. And he said, you know, all those meals we've had together, all those meals with bickering and fighting and somebody leaving in tears and, and somebody else finding the turkey underdone, all those meals. And this year it was perfect. And he said, but it was only perfect because we have done it so many times together. Mm. And I think about that, that that you go out into, you know, nature and it's wonderful and the feeling is good and it's individual. I mean, very meaningful. I don't mean to put that down, but but we come to church and we look around at those people we see every Sunday. I'm even... You know, I'm even getting sort of vaguely acquainted with the people I see in the little boxes on Sunday. Uh-huh. And and that is our that is our time for joint Eucharist, joint prayer, joint I sometimes wish we didn't do all the prayers for the people. They go on forever. And yet that's what we do together. Mm-hmm. And that's the core then what of what allows us to go forth into the world to love and serve the Lord. And so I think it's a mistake for people who just say, oh, I get more out of it. Nature, that just means rejecting the community Eucharist, the community struggle to pay attention all the way through, the community attempt to put one's body there where, where, as Elliot say, you know, where prayers have been heard, mm-hmm. to be together at Little Gidding in the place where we come together to love God. And then it's not about feeling. Walter Hilton in the 14th century said, you know, it's, it's, you may get feeling, and that's a nice thing. If you go to church and you feel good, terrific. But that's not what it's about. Mm. What it's about is being there and worshiping together. And so, um, and so to struggle to put all of that in a film seems to me, I mean, we don't want a church service in the film, obviously. No. 
but somehow to understand that the togetherness, and there we go back, interestingly, to Camelot. Those people have come together on Christmas Day. Mm-hmm. And however they're dressed and whatever they're doing, and even if they're failing, they have come together because it's the birth of Christ. Yeah. Would I take the film into the movie? No, absolutely not. Um, well, but but the ideas of it and the struggle to make sense of all these complex ideas, now that I would take. Well, I, you know, I think you've just made me aware that as we've been asking this question now for, I don't know, you know, all of last Lent and also this Advent, I've always thought of it as a kind of St. Anthony in the wilderness individual going off on his own. But of course, it could be the chosen people in the wilderness. It could be Exodus. I don't know why in my mindset, you know, this is something I would take into the wilderness and just view when I'm lonely, right? Why why couldn't you, Jen, bring your, you know, your laser uh, projector and a big screen in and, and have everybody watch something together? I, I don't know. <laughs> and, and in fact, of course, you know, the 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 fathers of the desert, they... They yeah. all had, as I once heard a scholar say, they all had waiting rooms because they were all constantly being received by visitors. In fact, I'm working on a thing right now about St. Paul the Hermit, who is said to be the first hermit. But the whole story is about Anthony going through the desert to find Paul. Yeah. So, in fact, it's never a solitary thing. Right. It's always about people coming together. Right. I mean, that's Anthony's story, right? He he spends yeah. a lot of time trying to get away from people and ends up growing gardens for all the guests who are coming because the yeah. community is unavoidable. You can't exactly. be a Christian without it. So, And in fact, holy people, as they say, the cloud of unknowing says that, that uh, you can recognize the devil because he only has one nostril. But if you are truly a person of faith, you are beautiful. Everyone is drawn to you. Yeah, lovely. Well, Jed, would you take this film into the wilderness? You know, after watching it again last night, I realized in, in, in this conversation, this is a movie that I enjoy talking about even more than watching. Huh. I think it's a really enjoyable, lovely movie with lots there. And it's often, it comes to life for me in conversation. So I'm going to say no, because in my imaginary world, I'm alone in the wilderness. And so uh, I'm going to say no, because then I would just want to talk about it with others. Yeah, well, I also will say no. um, But now I'm rethinking whether I should be alone in the wilderness in my imaginary world. So that's a good question to end on, you know, as as we go into Advent. um, You know, the model of Christ, Christ in the wilderness is alone, but of course, you know, my favorite paintings of Christ in the wilderness are Stanley Spencer's, where throughout he is commuting with chickens and scorpions, and he's never alone. You know, there's a whole community of living beings around him who he's in conversation with. So, And then uh, once the devil leaves, it's his angels come and minister to him. Yeah, you're right, right. There with the devil and then with the angels. Yes. Not to make scorpions. 
Well, uh, thank you, listeners, for listening to Films in the Wilderness. Our theme music is provided by the great Brianna Kelly, and we are so grateful for the support of the Diocese of Southern Ohio, and especially for the work and support of Emma Steinmetz, Christopher Richardson, and Jason Oden. And Marsha, I am so grateful for you being with us today. This has been a wonderful conversation. Well, it's been wonderful for me. It's let me really think not only about the poem but a great deal about the movie and and i have i have a much fuller appreciation of it because of you too thank you thank, thank you, you marcia all right bye you all bye, bye. great day thanks for inviting me of course oh, you're welcome great to have you yeah bye. Bye.